Welcome to Wavelengths, a podcast with Amphenol Broadband Solutions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Wavelengths, an Amphenol Broadband podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show as we continue to unpack timely topics and lay out some actionable strategies for our audience on the current state of broadband and the larger telecom industry. Now, as we dig into today's point of conversation and unpack some research from our guest, I want to make sure that you're all caught up on previous episodes of the show. So make sure that you're heading to our website, amphenolbroadband.com. Again, that's amphenolbroadband.com. On there, you'll find previous episodes of the show, as well as uh, other information about our solutions and services, of course, but then also other pieces of content, including episodes of the podcast, but also research, white papers, blogs, videos, you name it. You can also subscribe to Wavelengths on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So just hit that subscribe button and you'll have a full catalog of previous conversations plus notifications when we drop new episodes. So on today's episode of the show, we're excited to welcome a nationally recognized expert on broadband policy and rural broadband to get a pulse check on, you guessed it, rural broadband. So this has been, uh, you know, and if you've been following our show, you'll know this has been a topic of conversation for several episodes. Now, we've broken down updates to Ardoff's census technologies, some of its failures and laying out strategies for improving said tech. We also broke down updates to federal funding mechanisms, who's getting payouts and how to strategize around proper use of this influx of money for broadband connectivity. So to avoid retreading ground, we're going to focus in our conversation today on the specific research and analysis that our guest has covered over the years. And chiefly, we're going to be pulling from his book, Farm Fresh Broadband, The Politics of Rural Connectivity. So I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Christopher Alley. He's Associate Professor for the Department of Media Studies at the University of Virginia. Dr. Alley, great to have you on. How are you doing? Doing great, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. It's a real pleasure getting to pull from your insights today. Your book is very well researched and you know we're only going to be able to talk on maybe two core points from it today, but I <laughs> highly recommend folks get themselves a copy. Before we jump in, if folks do want to read along, maybe they want to pause and, and flip through the ebook or a physical copy, where can they get a hold of this book? Pretty much anywhere you buy books. Amazon, it was published by MIT Press. You can get it there. Penguin Random House is the distributor, so you can find it there. Barnes & Noble has it. A lot of local bookstores are carrying it as well. So pretty much anywhere you buy a book, you'll probably find my book. Love it. All right. Well, again, folks, get yourself a copy. It's insightful. It's still very timely. It was uh, released in September of 2021. So a lot of the dynamics that Dr. Alley broke down still are immediately applicable as we you know, still wait to see RDOF round one funds even get fully applied. So Dr. Alley will break down more specifics from your book here in a little bit. But what I want to start with is kind of a pulse check, like I said earlier, a bit of a lightning round style set of questions to get some recent updates around the current state of rural broadband funding. I think this will help our audience get a better sense for where your analysis lies, and then we'll get into some of the meat of your research in the book. So 
let's start by looking at some of the updates around RDOF round one funding. Uh, so Fierce Telecom does some great reporting on this subject. But uh, one of the things that stood out to me in recent reporting was that companies that received a major stake of round one funding, like Texas-based top 10 round one bidder NextLink, they're now publicly coming out and saying, this boom in federal funding is going to be huge for our growth. We're going to see, quote, exponential growth over the next three years. So there's a lot of excitement about applying this you know, federal initiative for growth. And so I'm curious if you see this being something that's, I guess, a rising tides lift all boats kind of situation, right? Where across the board, we should expect to see growth for all providers because of this increase in federal funding for untapped projects? Or is this going to be more of a an exponential centralization of the industry, specifically in those rural communities? What are your thoughts? It's a great way to start this conversation. And I am concerned that it's going to be the second option, that we're going to see more centralization. If we look at particularly RDOF round one, where most of the money went, it went to the familiar providers. And the exception here would, of course, be the Rural Electric Consortium, which probably was the only one in the top 10 folks may not have been completely familiar with, right? But but if we look at who won, I mean, Starlink won a lot of money, Charter certainly did, CenturyLink Frontier, all those kind of familiar faces, particularly familiar faces who had been part of the Connect America Fund program, particularly Connect America Fund phase two, which went largely to the largest telecommunications companies. And so one of the concerns that I have around this particular first round of RDOF is, is have we just been funding what I call the largest and the loudest providers at the expense of the local and regional providers who have been the ones doing a lot more of the fiber to the home, fiber to the node, fiber to the curb, fiber to the tower in, in recent years than, than the largest providers have. And so I'm always watching RDOF pretty quickly or pretty closely rather to see to see how the FCC is doling out this money, but also you know, the FCC has has recognized, and I applaud them for that, that they didn't really do their due diligence on that first round of RDOF funding. And and now they're, you know, they're, they're clawing back some of that money. They're, they're asking uh, award winners to make sure that they can actually abide by their promises, which is great to see. But I still think we're going to see some shakeups with this first round. And I think we might see, well, I hope we might see actually a, a kind of a radically different RDOF when it gets to phase two. Mm. And we'll follow up on that whole dynamic here in a second as well. Another, I guess, update to RDOF funding has been the FCC's approved sort of extra layers of funding since the beginning of the year. I mean, I'll just kind of give a, a high level breakdown here. But in January, they approved and authorized an additional $1.2 billion for phase one winners. We got $640 million in March. In late March, another $313 million. So we're seeing, you know, if not you know, just the general doling out of round one funds, but we're also seeing approved additional funds to support these initial projects. I'm curious what your take on that is and how does this amount of money in its current state shape some of the potential outlook or potential success about how you and the rest of the industry are viewing RDOF funded projects? Yeah, again, a, another great question. And, and, and I mean, let's be clear, like, I mean, more money, the better in this space. We know that solving the rural urban digital divide, when it comes to infrastructure, like let's leave affordability to a side for a second. When it comes to infrastructure, this is tremendously expensive, particularly if we're looking at deploying fiber to the node, to the curb, to the tower, you know, somewhere between $27,000 and $100,000 a mile. So we're going to need that kind of influx of 
capital. So I'm, I'm glad to see that. I think one of the things that concerns me, though, on the flip side, with all of this money coming down the pipes, is that we're still using bad maps. Until the FCC really releases you know, the revised Form 477 mapping, we're, we're hearing an early map might cut out in September. That seems a little ambitious to me, but we'll see what, you know, I, I, I worry that where is this money going, literally going um, in the geography of the United States? And are we going to see, you know, uninhabited areas be funded for broadband? Are we going to see areas that are either double counted or are we going to continue to see areas that are un and under connected, but are quote unquote served on the map continue to be left out of what is the largest investment in telecommunications, if we look at RDOF plus IAJA plus ARPA and CARES, I mean, this is the, the largest investment in telecommunications in the country's history. We can't afford to get it wrong. And and so we need to be making sure that the FCC, the NTIA, USDA through RUS are doing their due diligence, both on their award winners, but also on the maps to make sure that folks who are on and under connected are getting the benefit of this amazing amount of investment. Right. And the last thing we want to do is elevate and, you know, push for the potential positives of this mass federal funding initiative only for that to turn into lackluster deployment or, you know, um, further mistrust in our federal levers of funding and of supporting these kinds of projects. I, I think that will only spell you know, difficulties for the industry moving forward. So yes, great point. We definitely cannot afford to get it wrong. Speaking of more money, the last kind of quick point I want to hit on before we get into your book is the Biden administration recently announced its proposed fiscal year budget and included in that budget is $600 million for the USDA's ReConnect program, which is a loan and grant program to help cover operators' costs of deployment. How does that extra 600 million and that funding mechanism intersect with some of the rest of the federal funding stream that we have available today? What are your thoughts? Well, for, for anyone who's read my book and read my work, you'll know that I'm a huge fan of USDA, huge fan of RUS, huge fan of ReConnect. And, and you know, I, I, I really see the RUS programs and the FCC programs working in tandem. FCC, you know, is doling out its money over 10 years, which allows operators to think about operational costs. We've got RUS money, which is really kind of front loaded and, and really involved in, in capital costs and so or capital expenditures. And, and so it's it's great. I think Ardolf, or sorry, uh, I think Reconnect has been a tremendous success. What I'm particularly excited about, and I actually just wrote an op-ed on this for Broadband Breakfast, is the October 2021 RUS Reconnect Notice of Funding Availability, where they really tried to drive the broadband policy conversation, right? They made eligible communities 120, not 25-3, which meant we saw a whole lot more eligibility. They wanted to see day one speeds at 100, 100, which is awesome. But then just last month, Congress kind of slapped all of that back. And so I wonder how much we're going to see this kind of tug of war between Congress, which, of course, authorized and actually created the ReConnect program and continues to fund it again through, you know, this extra 600 million and, and the Consolidated Appropriations Act gave another 400 million to it. But it does seem that Congress is really micromanaging the ReConnect program and not letting USDA kind of do what it's good at, which is championing rural communities. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious to, you know, if, I, if, if we had a member of Congress here who passed the Consolidated Appropriations Act, I'd be curious to know, like, why? Why does Congress feel the need to intervene only in ReConnect and and, and not in other programs? And, and so this is a little bit vexing for me. But um, like I said, I'm a huge fan of the ReConnect program. 
Yeah, honestly, we'll probably need to do a whole separate interview on, on yes. just the USDA's funding mechanisms. I mean, I know in your book, you call out the potential for rural broadband to fund precision agriculture and sort of this industrial transformation, the industry 4.0 version of agriculture. And that that in and of itself is a 30 minute conversation. So <laughs> definitely folks get that book and at least give yourself a primer before we eventually loop back around for another interview. But yes, thank you so much for your uh, sort of timely perspectives on those topics. Of course. Yeah. Now what I want to do is jump into some of the analysis in your book that really stood out to me, which I think also link back to and intersect with our timely points from before. So the first one, and this is really the, the meat of your book, or at least the one that I took away, was that one of the key critiques in your book was of the historical limitations of rural broadband policy in the past. Specifically, you intersected how the private market mechanisms that propel rural broadband deployment have failed to incentivize new projects. You intersect that with how the policy response to those market failures have kind of missed the mark. So you have both a, a public and a private arm just kind of either disinterested or just unable to meet the needs of the time. Can you expand on some of that for us? And what did your research find were the main reasons why rural broadband policies of the past have failed to serve these communities? Absolutely happy to. And I see the kind of market failure and policy failure when it comes to rural broadband deployment really circulating around, you know, what you could call big telco or big cable, the kind of these large incumbent providers. And I, I should also say for those interested in my book, the book is primarily about deployment of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. There was a little bit about affordability, a little bit about the other components that it that make up the many digital divides that exist in the United States and and particularly around digital inclusion, digital equity. But the book is really about infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And, and, and really, the, you know, one of the major questions is between 2009 and 2017, this country spent $47 billion on specifically on rural broadband deployment. But we, we haven't even come close to solving the, the rural urban digital divide. And, and what I identify in the book is one of the major failures is that we've kind of put all of our eggs into one basket. And that basket has been about incumbents. Hmm. I particularly focus on the Connect America Fund Phase 2, uh, beginning in 2015, ending in 2021, a little bit of drags into 2022, into RDOF, that really just identified the 10 largest, what are called price cap carriers, the 10 largest telephone companies in the country, and said, here are areas that are unconnected that happen to be in your jurisdiction. Here's a bunch of money. Go ahead and go forth and connect, right? And, and what we ended up doing, or what policymakers ended up doing, is... is giving these giving these companies hundreds of millions of dollars a year, but with such low build-out requirements that it meant that they really didn't have to be deploying future-looking technologies. They could just, you know, continue with the the, the DSL, the copper wires. Uh, we also in kept including satellite into this into this picture as well. All for, you know, what I call getting good enough broadband out to rural communities that, again, missed the mark. And I think one of the most painful things we saw during the pandemic was about folks who thought they had good enough broadband from some of these providers. Turns out that they wouldn't, they're not able to participate in a Zoom conversation or when multiple members of a, of a household had to be on Zoom at the same time for work or education, the network wasn't able to keep up. And, and, and so we were really connecting folks, if they were connected at all with the technologies of the past rather than te future looking technologies. And, and, and so I really do identify that intersection of market failure, policy failure, and large incumbent failure, to be honest, as, as one of the major reasons why we continue to need to invest tens of billions of dollars into infrastructure 
deployment. And, and this is where I'm really hoping that with the Infrastructure Act, that history actually does not repeat itself, that we think about it as terms of like an all hands on deck approach, where we champion not just incumbents, in fact, we move the champion away from incumbents and, and, and put it towards a local level, a cooperative level, a municipal level. Yeah. So then if we look at RDOF and some of the um, you know, ways that it's approaching doling out its round one fund, some of the critiques that have already been made of RDOF, would you say that they're approaching this intersection of challenges, both the sort of failure of previous policy as well as that uh, private market incentive challenge? Is RDOF approaching both of these things or either of them differently than before? If so, um, you know, is it for better, for worse? Like kind of what, what's the pulse check there? Yeah, I, I I think, you know, if we look at the original call within RDOF, the original the original docket, there is a lot of excitement there, mainly because they moved eligibility for award winners outside of telephone companies, mm. either large ones with CAF2 or small ones like ACAM. But, you know, suddenly we saw cable companies that being allowed to apply satellite companies, electric co-opters were eligible for a lot of money. Right. That being said, when you look at the top winners, we just, again, and this is go back to our earlier conversations, we see a lot of familiar faces, right? LTD broadband, which of course is a fixed wireless provider. Number two is Charter, right? Uh, Charter, big, big cable provider. Number three, uh, Rural Electric Consortium, which was great. Then we've got SpaceX, Windstream, Nextlink, Frontier, and CenturyLink's, you know, kind of also rounding up the top 10. These are These are familiar players. I would have liked to have seen more diversity in terms of that the big winners for Ardoff. And so I was disappointed to see that. And and when I wrote the book, Ardoff winners were just being announced. So I was able to critique this a little bit. But now that we're seeing kind of this really flushed out, I would have I would have liked to have seen particularly more more cooperatives and and more public private uh, partnerships as well, uh, rather than just again the largest and the loudest. I mean if we look at something like SpaceX, SpaceX, yes, is a new is a new player here, but you know, with a, at that point, really unproven technology. And now we're still weighing the merits of SpaceX. And and the FCC gave them, what, uh, $800 million, almost $900 million. That, that to me is a little upsetting when we knew there were all, you know, very strong local alternatives, literally on the ground. Yeah, right. <laughs> Quite literally on the ground. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's and, you know, I, I don't think anyone would call SpaceX like a, a new player that's really, you know, just getting its footing in the industry either. Right. So, yes, you, you do have this dynamic where you have, you know, like you said, an entrants that maybe are new in terms of their technology offering or, you know, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. SpaceX is only you know, I, I wish I had the numbers on hand, but, you know, a handful of years old. Mm-hmm. But then also, yes, you have these established telco players that are receiving hundreds of millions of dollars. And one of the top 10 was you know, a, a rural consortium, like you mentioned, right, was an actual player that has uh, its its business model rooted in providing broadband to rural communities. So I imagine that will create some tension in how this money is uh, applied when it gets to these communities, which we'll also get into in a second. But I also want to bring up, you know, you you mentioned there are a ton of the familiar faces, but also surprisingly in that top 10 list, there were a lot of missing familiar faces. I mean, like we didn't see Verizon, for example. And I, I know a lot of the huge 
players in the telco space actually didn't even bid in round one because mm -hmm. of some of the issues they saw in um, the mapping technology, which you mentioned earlier, sort of the uh, inefficiency around how the FCC was gathering its census data and then applying that to the um, the funding mechanism. So what are your thoughts then on if they solve all these things and then suddenly you get even bigger players interested in getting round two funds, uh, you know, do you see that being a point of concern as well for meeting this potential you know, need for diversifying the payout of RDOF funds? W what are your thoughts on that dynamic? Yeah, you know, um, a great question. You're absolutely right, particularly with Verizon not participating in, in RDOF at all. This, of course, opened the door to Charter, being able to walk away with a ton of money, a billion dollars. Right. Are we going to see Comcast, you know, in round two suddenly say, oh, well, you know, if Charter did it, so can we. Or, you know, or, or Cox, for that matter, some of the big cable players who have largely been left out of the funding pie. Because largely they don't have a footprint in rural communities or remote communities, which is what this is for. And, and, and so we need to make sure that we are, or rather the FCC needs to make sure that it is doing its due diligence. And, you know, one of a, a great example here, of, of course, the controversy around LTV broadband when it had promised gigabit speeds and, and the FCC kind of not doing its due diligence around whether or not a fixed wireless provider could in fact technologically deliver gigabit speeds and this is this was something that i found i found disappointing because i'm you know uh, i'm a fan of fixed wireless providers but i think i do think kind of ltv shot at themselves in the foot shot actually the practice of fixed wireless in the foot by over exaggerating what i could do because fixed wireless is going to become particularly in agricultural communities a major provider because of the expense of fiber. So we might be seeing a lot of multi-technology uh, multi networks where you've got maybe fiber to the business, but then fiber to the tower for residential and for farming, right? Fixed wireless is going to play a major role here. So, but let's not over-exaggerate what fixed wireless can actually do. And, and unfortunately, that's, of course, what, what LTD did. You know, what I am hearing both, you know, the concern certainly with RDOF, but then going into the IIJA is also what role is big cable going to play in all of this? My my understanding is that they are eager to access this money now that they're eligible. And certainly we saw this with Charter. So so I'm going to be watching very strongly companies like Comcast or whether or not Comcast is going to try be knocking on the doors of states, just like Charter and Charter was quite successful to do this with Ardolf. So I think we should be really following what Charter does. And, and they might be the model for what other large, 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 large providers are doing in terms of accessing federal funding. And then last point on you know this set of questions here, but for RDOF, what do you see as some of the limitations around the potential success of RDOF, specifically around how it is you know, quite literally taking the money and identifying which projects are worth investing mm -hmm. in, uh, you know, from a, a technical standpoint, from uh, a business model standpoint, where are the limitations on that side of things beyond just sort of some of the gaps in who is receiving the money and how do you foresee those potential challenges shaping the success of RDOF through the coming years? Well, again, you know, to me, this all comes down to mapping. We are still using the bad maps. So, you know, we're going to get lucky and we're going to identify the FCC identifying places where there really is no service or it is, it is completely underserved. So that, you know, 
but they're, they're also going to miss the mark at some points too, because the maps miss the mark. So, you know, again, going back to our earlier point, when the FCC is opening the piggy banks to more in RDOF phase one, we're still opening those piggy banks to those bad maps. And so the FCC needs to be doing its, its due diligence. It actually has even more responsibility to make sure that they are a good steward of what is ostensibly public money, right? We are all paying into this through the universal service fund. I mean, not literally through taxes, but we are kind of being taxed on on our communication bills uh, in order to fund this. So it is, it's, you know, consumer funds to say the least. And so we need to make sure, the FCC needs to make sure, you know, when, uh, when we're rolling out new money, that it, it's really doing its due diligence around one dig ready projects or shovel ready projects, two around the mapping. And three, I would love to see the FCC take history into account when making these decisions. I mean, if you look at, for instance, CenturyLink and Frontier, they got a ton of CAV2 money, but weren't able to fulfill its com their commitments in 2018 and 2019. Why are they continuing to be eligible for tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars through this new program, right? There needs to be some accountability here for winners. And and just trusting these these players that they will do that they will be good stewards of public money, I don't think has served us very well. So I'd love to see more accountability and enforceability on on the end of the FCC. But of course, you know, I'll also give the FCC, you know, credit and, and leniency. They're, you know, they're staffed with humans and these humans have good intentions, but they're going to make mistakes. And so we also need to make sure on the flip side that there's a robust and respected challenge process that goes along with a lot of these awards. And I know that there is a challenge process, but we need to make sure it's actually being respected. And that's also being enforced too, because that's oftentimes the only voice that, or the only voice that a lot of local communities can have at the SEC is through this challenge process. Right. No, great point. Um, I'm so glad you brought that up too, because that sort of leads me into my last question here for you before we wrap up. But you know, we've, we've identified now several times in our conversation that, again, of the top 10 bidder list, about nine of 10 legacy players, already well-funded capital-rich players, uh, and also players that don't really have much of a footprint in these rural communities already. So what are some of the solutions that you recommend? How should we adjust these policies, these funding mechanisms? I mean, what, what does the industry need to do so that smaller players, you know, the, the smaller providers, the cooperatives, the local communities at large have a seat at the table and get to dictate how the technology specs, the technology itself, and who is rolling out this, you know, this broadband for their community. What are your thoughts? Well, I'm going to start off with a bit of a cynical thought, which <laughs> is that I don't think industry is particularly interested in opening the opening more up more seats at the table. You know, they've been quite comfortable <laughs> with their with their exclusive seats at the at the FCC table. But as I argue in my book, local broadband is the best broadband. And, and by this, I mean local and regional investor-owned companies. I mean local telephone cooperatives. I mean local electric cooperatives. I mean municipal broadband providers. These have been the ones that are deploying future-looking technology and affordable future-looking technology into local rural communities. They're also trusted, right? This is particularly true of cooperatives. They are incredibly trusted in their communities. One thing that policymakers can do, not only to, to invite them to the table, in order to do that, we also make it, e we need to make it easier for them to get to the table. You know, so much of federal policy when it comes to broadband, when it comes to so much, is written for, you know, basically the lawyers of the incumbents, whatever industry it is. 
we need to make sure that a small telephone cooperative in Montana is able to access RDOF funding, which means simplifying the, the application process, which means having more of a pipeline, which means having language around. I would hopefully love to see language that prioritizes local providers. This is something actually that ReConnect has done and also Treasury did with the $10 billion capital fund, which is actually prioritized nonprofit, public-private partnerships, cooperative municipalities, you know, uh, government entities, local entities. That's the type of language I would love to see also adopted at the FCC, particularly as it starts to contemplate RDOF round two, is that local prioritization. And a little bit of a history lesson. I mean, so March 2021, President Biden said broadband is the next electricity. And if we look at what that meant, when we electrified rural America in the 1930s and 19, 19, uh, 1940s, we did not turn to incumbent power providers. We turned to local communities mm -hmm. and incentivized them through the creation of electric cooperatives. That's the kind of localism ethos I would love to see happen again in the broadband space. I think it's already happening within local communities, but it's about time that policymakers and regulators paid attention to what's going on the ground locally as well. And I think with that historical analog, we'll go ahead and leave this episode. So thank you so much, Dr. Ali, for your perspectives today. And again, this is really only scratching the surface of some of your research and analysis. So I encourage folks to check out the full book. Again, it's called Farm Fresh Broadband, The Politics of Rural Connectivity. And Dr. Ali, if folks want to get in touch with you, pick your brain on this at all, you know, where can they read more of your work, uh, whether that's the book or maybe just shoot you an email? Yeah, so I can be reached at uh, C-A-L-I at Virginia.edu. I'm also on Twitter at at Ali, A-L-I underscore Christopher. Um, I like to think that I'm pretty responsive. Of course, we're getting to the end of the semester, so I'm getting a little, I'm getting a little hurried, harried with uh, student emails, but love to hear from folks who ask questions, who share their own uh, stories around rural connectivity and, and always around to, to, talk to, to talk to anyone who's interested in the subject as well. Fantastic stuff. Dr. Christopher Alley, Associate Professor for the Department of Media Studies at the University of Virginia. Thank you again for your time. It's really been a pleasure. And hopefully we get some more conversations in the future because there is plenty to talk about. And uh, we're going to keep getting updates to RDOF and other federal funding mechanisms that will shape the future of rural broadband connectivity. So till then, we'll chat again soon. Sounds good. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And thank you everyone for tapping into this episode of Wavelengths, a Amphenol broadband podcast. If you like what you heard and saw today and you want some previous episodes or you want to make sure you're all caught up on uh, our previous conversations, because there was a lot that Dr. Ali and I mentioned today that you can actually find in some of our other episodes, specifically some of the issues around RDOF's um, funding maps and census mapping mechanisms. So for all of that and more, head to our website, amphenolbroadband.com again amphenolbroadband.com and subscribe to wavelengths on apple podcasts and spotify i'm your host daniel litwin the voice of b2b and we'll catch you on the next episode of wavelengths <laughs>